0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. There are only two days left for you to help us minimize program interruptions and limit or stop the Spring On Air Fundraiser. If you go to WDET.org and make your gift now, you will become a Team DET member. And we're also asking you to become a Team DET recruiter by telling two friends that you support independent journalism, great music, and conversation right here on WDET. Make your gift now and help grow Team DET at WDET.org. Up first, if you watch cable news, you've probably seen Tom Steyer. He's the face and the money behind a large marketing push called Need to Impeach. And in the commercials, he sits in front of the camera imploring politicians and Americans more broadly to impeach President Donald Trump. Steyer says he thinks that President Trump is the single greatest threat to our democracy. And he says that problem has to be tackled first before we can make headway on the other progressive causes he spends his personal wealth on, climate change, immigration, healthcare, and education. Steyer became a billionaire as the founder and principal of Farallon Capital Investment Firm, but he left the private sector and founded NextGen America, which is a nonprofit organization and a super PAC aimed at motivating young voters to action. Steyer, who's in his early 60s, has narrowed in on 10 states where he sees key political shifts that could be made in 2018, and Michigan is one of those states. He stopped by WDET while he was in Detroit last week, and he spoke with Detroit Today senior producer Laura Weber-Davis. Laura asked him why he is focusing on these 10 states. Well, let me say that there are
1: many ways to cut um, the political situation in 2018, many divisions and ways of thinking. And we are in 10 states, but we're also in 30 congressional districts. So when we think about what's going to happen uh, in 2018, there's a question about who is going to control the Congress of the United States after November 6th, who's going to control the Senate of the United States after November 6th, who's going to be there. I think 38 governorships that are up and a ton of state legislatures. So when you think about what's up, you know, there are both federal and state races that have great significance in the short and medium term.
2: What is your strategy as you're entering these states or does the strategy have to change depending on the state?
1: Well, I think every state is different. Michigan, you know, it has its own issues. It has a specific set of races that are up. So when we think about Michigan, it has some Congress, high, hotly contested congressional uh, seats or that we expect to be hotly contested. It has a governorship that's up. It has a Senate seat that's up. It has legislative seats that are up. So when we think about Michigan, since what we do, let me just start step back for a second. What we do is organize grassroots operations. What we're really trying to do is enable American citizens to have conversations with each other on the issues that are most important to them. We believe that if we get a broad democracy where people are engaged in the process and turn out, we will get better answers. We think this year is a critical year, that it's really a stark choice about the values that America holds most dearly. And so what we're doing in Michigan, one of the things we're doing, the primary thing, is trying to organize young people. If you look at the turnout of the so-called millennial generation, people under 35, they turn out in the election process about half the rate of the other American citizens. It's the biggest age cohort in the United States, bigger than the baby boomers, but their voices have half the weight of other generations because they show up at the polls at half the rate. So from our standpoint, what we're trying to do is organize conversations between people in that age cohort to talk about what the most important issues are to them about why their vote is so important, and why their participation will result in a much better future for America.
2: This seems like sort of the the ever-present problem that uh, many, especially progressive uh, politicians or interested parties, have to contend with. The generating and generation of enthusiasm among younger voters, and also the education of younger voters. It's still an age-old problem, I think, in this country of getting people excited, at least in the modern era, getting people excited that are in that sort of below 25 threshold before people are really paying taxes and thinking about their jobs. So what is the fresh way to tackle that problem and make, make it stick, I guess? Well, let me say this.
1: I think that that may have been true. I don't believe that's true in 2018. Okay. I think we're seeing a incredible wave of emotion coming from the millennial generation.
2: Certainly we've been seeing that with the gun debate.
1: It's it's the, yeah. I was at the University of Michigan at Dearborn. And so we spent a little bit I spent a little bit of time clipboarding just going up to students and asking them to fill out a card showing what the issues are that matter the most to them, and then sitting and uh, having lunch and verbally having that conversation over an hour, hour and a half with 20 students just to get their feedback on where, what, their, what they were, their concerns were and what the concerns were of their peers and friends. Sure. And there is a very, very high degree of emotion about what's going on right now. At a level that we've never seen before. And, you know, we are the largest millennial organizing group in the United States. We did organize in Virginia in the governor's race last November. We've been on the ground in a lot of the special elections in between. So we know that there's something different now than there was in 2000 or really any time up to now. And what we're seeing is a wave of. I I mean, it's very, very threatening to this generation to see what's happening in Washington, D.C. I think the gun violence issue is something that definitely is on their mind. But beyond that, you know, everyone in that room, I I asked how many of the people in this room are going to come out of college with substantial debt, and I think every student raised their hand. And they made a very strong point virtually to a person that the distinction between students and workers is a false one that the number of those kids who are working full-time jobs at ihop or as receptionists or doing lab work at the university to help pay the bills was overwhelming and so that the need to protect working people in this country and to give them a fair shake is something that would absolutely resonated with these students and I think that what we saw in Virginia the youth participation was up 32% from 4 years before and the spread between democrats and republicans went from 5% 52 to 47 to 39% 69 to 30 so we know that where we stand today there's a completely different atmosphere in this generation
2: now we talk a lot uh on the pro- on this program and in this city we reflect a lot on 50 years ago. Now, 50 years ago, you were awfully young, but uh, I, I think we see there, there are so many commonalities. Yeah. Um, do you, as you're focusing in on young people and young voters, do you see those commonalities as well? And, and you know, I would think of a hippie movement, right, or like an anti-war movement. Um, even the civil rights, young people, SNCC, people who are involved with the civil rights movement. Do you see those same sort of vibrations, Uh, going through the millennial generation? Or is it just completely different times because of the issues they're contending with maybe don't fit the same way?
1: Well, let let me just tell you what I think we see today, and then I'll try and draw a comparison to 1968. We view this as a straightforward question about the deepest values in America. That's what we see. And so when we talk to millennials, we're talking about the most basic things that Americans hold dear. Do we treat people as full human beings, regardless of their ethnicity, their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their country of origin, their religion? That's a critical question in America that we are confronting. I never thought we'd be confronting it so starkly as we are, but that's a question that we're absolutely confronting. We are confronting the question about whether working people deserve to be treated with respect and fairness and have a right to a living wage. That's a huge question in America right now. There is a gigantic question between whether our democracy is supposed to protect people based on their their, by person, that everybody is equal, regardless of their income level, or whether this is a democracy of dollars. And you know, then you get it, that those are basic values. We're not even talking about whether we should have universal care. Right. you know, the policies that fall out of that. These are basic values, and I see a gigantic, positive reinforcement and restatement of the values that have made America really progress since we were founded, that really what we're seeing is people reaffirm their most basic values in the face of what I consider to be a frontal assault on those values by this party in Washington, D.C. and this president. So I view, I view this when I think about 1968. When I think about 1968, I think about two things in that you were referring to. One is the civil rights movement sure. and the other is the anti-war movement yeah. that came together in 1968 around the assassination of Dr. King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, the present presidential run of Richard Nixon. And what we saw then, I think, was the same thing, was civil rights, the idea that every American deserved to be treated equally regardless of race. That was something where that was an affirmation, really, that I think was very important, that I think was a statement of change for America and of progress for America that they're trying to roll back now. And I view that the, the anti-war movement was a demand for honesty from the American government, which they were not getting. They were getting a pack of lies. That they were looking for an American value system overseas that res- reflected the same values that we espouse at home mm-hmm. that they were not getting. And really an intentionality that America is supposed to be an idea that we share, that is high minded and where we lead the world by our values of freedom and justice, not just by the size of our uh, military equipment. So I see these as, yes, I, I, I think that those movements were not a hit me movement. Those were a request that America live up to the ideals that we were founded on and that we move forward and use those ideals and apply them more broadly in our society. And that's what we're, that's what we see young people doing today and that's what we believe in today, is a return to what we think is the most basic American values and American patriotism, both of which we think are under direct attack from the Republican Party and this administration in Washington DC.
2: It's interesting, I I think, as an outsider's perspective, you came into my living room uh, through these commercials, (laughs) right? And and my first thought was, now, now, who is this guy and what does he have to say? And you don't often see people focus so much of their time, energy, money on progressive political causes. Um, they are things that we do not—they they are disassociated in my mind. Tell me about that switch for you from man in the banking industry and focusing on investment to— progressive causes and devoting your life and your wealth to this, these issues?
1: You know, I think of myself as being super lucky person, um, partially just for being born in the United States of America, having a family that took care of me and got me a great education. Um, So I was somebody who was always aware that if I were successful, it wasn't something that I'd done on my own, but was something... I did start my own business, but I felt like I had hundreds of years of people who I was related to and not related to preparing the way for me to get a chance to succeed. And I felt as if anyone in my position has a responsibility to try to make it square and to support the society that supported him or her. Mm -hmm. And so I felt what a great chance for me that I can devote, you know, really push back what I don't think of them, by the way, as progressive causes. I don't think patriotism is a progressive cause. I think of it as an American cause. And I felt as if we were in a dire situation where we were going off the rails and that if I could do something to push back and try and get us to, you know, be part of the group of people working for a more just and more prosperous America where people were, had, more optimism and were more confident about their future and were living better lives, that that was something that was going to make my life much more fun and that it was going to be something where I could square the, uh, the account with the rest of society. I think, you know, I think it really started when I realized what a bad president George W. Bush was. I think prior to that, I had felt as if the American system was working and that, you know, we, our normal American system, people outside this country don't understand. We yell and scream a lot, but the fact of the matter is Americans are very patriotic, and our tradition is to yell and scream, compromise, solve the big problems, and move on. And everyone's like, but they're yelling and screaming. And we're like, yeah, we are. That's how we do it. It's not a problem. But I think that starting then, and I think then continuing, I watched the climate debate go off the rails somewhere around 2008, and you could see between... That we were actually getting away from dealing with our problems honestly.
0: That's Tom Steyer, the founder of Next Gen America Super PAC. He is spending his personal wealth on a lot of progressive causes, including a series of commercials you may have seen that call for a need to impeach President Donald Trump. We'll have more from Steyer's conversation with Detroit Today senior producer Laura Weber Davis next. And always remember, if you miss out on the conversation here, you don't have to miss out entirely. Go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today and you can take us with you and listen when you are ready. We will be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. and As always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to continue our conversation with billionaire Tom Steyer, who's spending his personal wealth in an attempt to move the political needle in America in a progressive direction through young voters. Steyer was recently in Detroit, and he spoke with Detroit Today senior producer Laura Weber Davis. He says now is the time for substantive change in America, he sees the political structure of our nation in turmoil as the mood and discontent of Americas is driving people to action. When we talk about Americans being upset, Americans
1: participating at a higher level, I think it's in response to us to the sense that the political system itself has stopped serving them, that people are that elected officials are having trouble. Accepting and dealing with the truth, and dealing with the day-to-day needs of their constituents.
2: I do want to talk about the the commercials. Um, what what possessed you? <laughs> I mean, we have a guy here. I, I don't know if you've heard of Jeffrey Feiger. He he is a guy who has bought much airtime over the years. Um, sometimes poking at the idea of running for office, but. Oftentimes, uh, getting keeping his name out in the public, um, with uh, with his political opinions, and and consequently he is a household name around here. Now, tell me a little bit about balancing. Whether you want, did you want to make yourself a household name? Did you want to prod Congress to consider this action? Did you want to keep the American public thinking? about the possibility of, of unseating a, a sitting president? What were, what were your key motivating factors in deciding this was the right message and the right avenue to do this? Well, I think
1: there are two things. One is I actually believe this president is an urgent danger to the American people and to our democracy. And it, I thought that it was important that that be said, and I thought it was important that it was the elephant in the room that no one was saying it, but the fact of the matter is it's the overwhelming point in America right now. And so let's start with that There's a, I have a genuine deep belief that he is a threat to us and that that threat will grow every single day. We started that campaign on October 20th, and I believe at that point that I, everything that's happened since October 20th has borne out my original supposition that he is a threat to us that will only grow. I think the reason that we're doing that, we chose that way, is it's an attempt to organize directly the American people and their voice to go to elected officials, not to go to elected officials or try and convince people in Congress, but to try and organize Americans. And we got a much bigger response on this than we ever expected, and we continue to. The fact of the matter is the students at the University of Michigan at Dearborn are not the only people in the United States who are really upset about what's going on. Most Americans are really upset about what's going on. And they're very scared about what's happening to our country. We're going in this, I don't think I've agreed with anything this administration has done, literally. I think most Americans agree with me. And I think they're terrified. And I think that message has got to be organized and empowered so that the people in Washington, D.C. will listen to the people from outside the beltway. And that's what we're trying to do, is organize that voice so that pe- so that we can be heard, so that the voice of the people is what's supposed to run this country, and that's what we're trying to organize.
2: So was this a message that was more a message of comfort to the many people you knew who agreed with you uh, in the in the voting public? Or was it more a message as a sort of liaison for those people toward elected officials?
1: I'm not sure I totally understand that, but I don't think it's a message of comfort because I don't think there's any comfortable. I think I'm I mean not,
2: com- comfort as in your, your feeling is validated. I'm, I'm here to tell you you should be worried. That type of message.
1: Well, I think what, what we're really trying to do is enable them. Mm-hmm. We're trying to – one voice doesn't matter, but five million voices – do matter. 50 million voices really matter. I mean, our point is the American elected officials, this country is supposed to be run by the American people. If you think about everything we've talked about this morning, we're talking about trying to put power back in the hands of the American people. We're talking about door-to-door, person-to-person conversations where Americans talk about the issues that are most important to them and then go participate at the polls. giving the power to the broadest number of people the broadest democracy the best democracy the the need to impeach campaign is about trying to put the power it's about direct democracy trying to enable the voice of the people to be heard and to matter and to be to be ignored at the you know that anyone who's ignoring it is putting their career at risk. Yet
2: yeah, there are so many people, especially in Michigan, as you've looked at these district by district, I know that you've probably gotten to the details of some of these counties that really elected Donald Trump. The county here that was sort of the bellwether for the state was Macomb County, just north of, of here. And so many of those people have been sort of lifelong uh, blue-collar Democrats who f- still continue to feel ignored and felt like they were being validated, that they were at risk before, but then now they're being validated by this president. And so they feel completely opposite uh, from from your point of view of we should all be worried. They felt like we've been worried up until this moment, and now we are truly being supported and heard and recognized. How do you uh, reach those people with such a strong message?
1: Well, let me say this. Obviously, Mr. Trump still has supporters in the United States of America. But what we're seeing in every election around the country since 2016 is that the, the number of people who feel the way you just described is many fewer than the people who agree with me. And we saw that in the Pennsylvania special election on Tuesday, where Connor Lamb appears to have... One in a district that Mr. Trump took by 20 percent that was an overwhelmingly white district and where that was supposed to be, you know, that was supposed to be the state that proved his thesis. The fact of the matter is Mr. Trump has performed horribly, is a threat to working people. And I don't I think that working people around the United States of America did feel abandoned. If you listen to what I'm saying, I believe that there has been an onslaught of corrupt corporate money that has taken over our politics. And if you look at where the benefits of American growth and American progress has gone, it's gone overwhelmingly to corporations and rich people. And that's been at the expense of working people and families. And I don't see that. I absolutely believe that. And I think that their sense of abandonment was genuine and sensible. But the fact of the matter is what Mr. Trump has done since he's been president has been to work directly contrary to their interests. He's talked a good game, but when you look and see what he's actually done, he's actually worked directly in the interests of the corporations and rich people. He's worked against the interests of working people. And in fact, he has not done what we need to do, which is to invest in those families and those people and those communities so they can be successful and so our country can be successful.
2: Well, so one of the analyses I've read of of your um, your impeachment campaign is that it's perhaps a soft a soft entry into the 2020 presidential election. Are you interested in in that level of office or running for office at all? or are you more interested in um, sort of poking at the conversation from the outsides?
1: Well, I spent all of 2017 with people telling me that what we were doing that all the work we were doing was really so that I could run for governor or Senate in California. And, and I said to them repeatedly, listen, all I'm trying to do is figure out how to have the most positive impact. And whatever that is, I will do. And that's exactly what I'm doing. So when I think about, in answer to your question, in 2018, what am I doing? We are completely focused on November 6, 2018, because nobody knows what's going to happen betwe- on, on election day this year. We don't know who's going to control the Congress of the United States of America. We don't know who's going to control the Senate of the United States of America. We don't know who's going to be the governor of Michigan. We don't know who's going to control the legislatures in Michigan. The fact of the matter, that's true all over the country. We are in what I would consider to be straight-up constitutional crisis right now, and we will either make progress that day or we'll take a huge step back. And I don't believe any pollster in the country knows what's going on, and I don't think anyone can predict that. So when you ask me what are my intentions after November 6th, my answer is I don't have intentions after November 6th because if I were spending time worried about November, November 7th, I wouldn't be focused on this year. And we look at what you do this year as an absolute definitional about what you care about. And this is what we care about. We are really genuinely trying to work as hard as we can so that we reaffirm the basic stuff in American values. You asked about 1968. It's like, that's where we are on the basic values of Americans. The LGBTQ community absolutely is at risk under this administration. They absolutely are quietly going about taking away protections for groups that had made progress for the last 50 years.
2: So even if you are singularly focused on November right now of 2018, if you're willing to put all things on the table because you are worried about this chief threat, this number one threat, it seems to me that that suggests a little bit that you would be willing to put yourself in the position of challenging that level of authority come December uh, of 2018, that you'd have to start thinking, even if you're singularly focused on November of this year right now, that you'd have, if you're that committed to it.
1: Let me say this. So I was, one of the things I've been trying to do to stave off mortality is climb all the 14,000-foot peaks, of which there are 15 in California, which is somewhat difficult task. And so I, was, I climbed one, and I was extremely tired, and we went down about 1,000 feet. So the last 1,000 feet, if you get above 12, is all rocks. Nothing grows up there. It's extremely rugged and, you know, slightly technical. So I was talking to my friend, and he said, what could I do to make you climb back up that 1,000 feet that we just came down from the top? And I said, there is nothing you could do to get me to climb that 1,000 feet. I, there is nothing you could If you offered me a million dollars right now, I wouldn't take it. Can't do it. He said, now, what about if we got back to a sensible United States of America? He's like, I will do it in bare feet,
2: I'll take that as my answer then for right now. Tom Steyer, thank you so much for joining us on Detroit. It's a total 10. pleasure to be here. It was really a pleasure to have you. Thank you.
0: That was Tom Steyer, the founder of Next Gen America, who's spending his time and his personal wealth on progressive causes and moving young voters to action. He spoke with Detroit Today senior producer Laura Weber Davis. Up next, we're going to talk about race and politics and how they swirl around one man in the U.S. Senate, Tim Scott, who is the only black member of the Senate, and he's a Republican. Stay with us on Detroit Today.